0: Hi everyone, mind rolling back. Here I am with a new friend. We're just becoming so as we will do this uh, Judson Brewer and Judson uh, is uh, teaches at Brown University and also heads up Center for Mindfulness. And he and I were just chatting about all the different uh, mindfulness people that we have in common, plus probably probably many others. So welcome. Judd,
1: thanks for having me.
0: And uh, uh, Judd has a book called The Craving Mind, which, by the way, I, um, I did not know about you until 1440.org uh, said to us, hey, uh, you'd really be interested in talking to Judd. And they were right. And I, I've been <laughs> <laughs> happy as hell to get this book, Judd. It's a wonderful book. And uh, it, here, from cigarettes to smartphones to love, why we get hooked and how we can break bad habits. Most people, I had a wonderful podcast around addiction, which turned my head around with uh, Gabor Mate. And, oh, yeah, you know, he's wonderful. And <laughs> he ended up uh, doing a little therapy with me. Okay, you must. You were addicted when you were a kid. Okay, come on. You were defending yourself. How were you doing? You know the whole thing. I was quite a session actually. Uh, so yeah, it was really great. Uh, what well, can you just uh, a little bit about you, the you, you? And there's a lot of talk about the you and the me in this book, and uh, but just so, something opened up for you, obviously, uh, to get you where you are today, and your uh, predominating interest in, in in buddhism and mindfulness how did that what opened up you know we could say you know me late 60s early 70s acid and music It was like rock and roll and then of course suddenly wow mayor baba you can be happy it's okay yeah. that was very yeah. attractive and then in my case, I met Ram Das as everybody who listens to this podcast knows, and went off to India with him when he went back the second time. And that's where I met all of our mutual friends, Jack Cornfield and Joseph and uh, Sharon. So, yeah, you, how did, how did it happen for you, this opening? Oh,
1: you know, I was suffering. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this particular uh, iteration of suffering was before medical school had um, Really stressed out, and for whatever reason, started uh, meditating. My first day of medical school, um, you know, it's new beginning. Um, why not try something new? Well,
0: they don't teach and you to meditate first day in medical school, now, do they?
1: No, I was kind of doing that as an extracurricular uh, <laughs> myself. Especially, you know, back in the '90s, uh, this was pretty unheard of in medical schools. Now they're starting to integrate, yeah. do a lot of integrative medicine. Uh, in medical schools, but this was, you know, this was not something that was in the curriculum. And, you know, I started learning about my mind and seeing how, how wild it was um, how much of my own suffering I was causing. And, and as I went through my MD PhD program, I was actually studying molecular biology um, and shifted my entire career from molecular biology to, you know, to being a psychiatrist never thought I would do that um, no. learning cognitive, becoming a neuro, neuroscientist and even, you know, founding a, a startup company eventually to help bring, you know, develop some of these, uh, these things and to make them more accessible to folks. But it all started with suffering um, and seeing, you know, what's the size of the cloth is uh, um, as, as some put it and, you know, seeing that there, there actually could be a way out and, mm. Um, in that we can actually pair what we know in modern science together with what was known for thousands of years.
0: Right. There is a way out. See, everybody? We've been saying it, and now Judd is confirming it. There is a way (laughs) out. And uh, there's so many different ways to cozy up to suffering. And there's many many um there's a lot of good understanding that i got especially starting out i mean this is really nuts if um if i were your boss and you told me i had the brain of a sea slug would i fire you for insulting me or promote you to head of marketing for demonstrating you really understood how humans think and behave okay and uh, uh, as we go further in i so the reality is this um the as you call it, the evolutionary ancestry that we take our cues from—that could be real, right? I mean, the the lower well, parts it could be. It, it is real. It is real. <laughs> Talk about that. I mean, that uh, that's a scary thought, actually, because boy, that you know, that makes it even more of a mountain to shave down.
1: Yeah, I think of it. Well, really, was set up as a survival mechanism. Help us remember where food is, help us avoid danger. And, you know, I like to look for parsimony because usually the simplest answer is the right one, you know, as, as Occam's razor points out again and again, especially in medicine. Um, but basically, you know, more, more and more, you know, there's a lot of studies showing that um, reward based learning is the primary form of, or the primary mechanism of learning. And that's how. We learn everything from tying our shoes to um, smoking cigarettes, to overeating, to even being anxious to some degree. Um, And so, you know, the basic elements are there's a trigger, a behavior, and a a result of that behavior. And that result, or in brain speak, reward drives future behavior. Something feels good, we do it again. If something feels bad, we learn to avoid it. Um, And that helped us. You know, survive. You see food, you eat it, your stomach sends this dopamine signal to your brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. So we learn, oh, here's a food source. Same thing for danger, avoid the danger. But in modern day, you know, we learn to eat, to feel good, not when we're hungry, but when we're stressed or anxious. You know, We learn to take pills, to numb ourselves from physical, emotional pain. Social media, we learn to look at cute pictures of puppies on Instagram when we're bored. That wasn't, you know, it's not... It's a different type of survival now, but our <laughs> brains are just trying to help us out in the only way they know.
0: Mm. But uh, that tie-in with the slug <laughs> mentality—I can't hear you now. Oh, sorry about that. We- that tie-in with the slug mentality is uh, a little bit of a, a a huge wake-up call to to that reality. And mm-hmm. uh, so I, you know, there's a great. Um, I love my Children, and I know you do, too, because you put this wonderful quote. And I'd love to read it because it really starts to talk about uh, that addiction. And again, you know, most people go, addiction? I'm not addicted. I don't use smack, and I don't drink excessively. And, you know, they, it's a complete, um, like, whitewashing of, of reality, actually. Um, when we scratch the wound and give in to our addictions, we do not allow the wound to heal. But when we instead experience the raw quality of the itch or pain of the wound and do not scratch it, we actually allow the wound to heal. So not giving in to our addictions is about healing at a very basic level. I mean that that's yeah. just right to the point. Uh, but certainly talk you talk about the addiction and way be, I mean the, This book enumerates them, and and we'll talk about it as we go forward here. But just the fact that, as I just said, this is not about um, addictive drugs or alcohol.
1: Now, I like the very simple definition of addiction, which is continued use despite adverse consequences. I Mm. think that really sums Mm -hmm. it up nicely, because that could be everything from cocaine to Twitter. Yeah.
0: That's a whole other great book, by the way, from Cocaine's Twitter, I think. <laughs> uh, but certainly talk about the trigger uh, behavior reward syndrome because that that's that's very valuable for all of us to to be able to um, just insert into our day-to-day lives that kind of mindfulness. So uh, mm-hmm. I think that would be really useful, Judd.
1: Well, I, I'm just thinking of uh, a patient I saw at... Uh, last week or the week before, who is working with alcohol use disorder. And, and she said it was thoughts and emotions that would trigger her to drink, which would, as she put it, uh, help her numb herself out. So you can see this trigger behavior result or reward loop pretty clearly. And even mapping that up with her was really helpful uh, for her to be able to see her mind, not as a black box, but as a survival mechanism. You know, it's, oh, this is my poor brain just trying to help me survive yet it had led her to problems continued use despite adverse consequences she was clearly not coming to see a psychiatrist for a social visit (laughs) she had just gotten out of rehab yeah Yeah. so even even being able to help people map that out is the first step to recovery
0: yeah another uh, another step i think and and uh we'll it comes from uh, John. John Kabat-Zinn wrote the foreword to this book. And, of course, he's been a form- one of the form- foremost people involved in mindfulness uh, since its earliest, earliest days. And he talks about uh, learning how we can liberate ourselves from the dominance and sometimes tyranny of our own craving mind, first and foremost, by paradoxically cultivating intimacy with it. And I think that's something that's very appropriate uh again as a practical device on a day-to-day basis and people will say well what do you mean intimacy you know i don't what do we mean by that <laughs> and uh, you know yeah uh, making friends with pain but in this case uh just starting with t- seeing how we are so caught in that syndrome and how we uh It's like, you know, how people say, Well, I don't know what I'd do if I couldn't continue to uh, enjoy the fruits of my suffering. I mean, basically, right? (laughs) Right. I mean, people uh, hang on. We do hang on to this because it is what we know. So, yeah, intimacy.
1: Yeah, well, and if you think about it, even just from the basic survival standpoint, our brain says, Oh, this is unpleasant. I want to make this go away as quickly as possible. And so to even, to even explore the paradox of turning toward instead of turning away is already a radical Hmm. act. John talks about this radical act of kindness to ourselves by, by really being with whatever is. And so taking that step taking that leap of faith to explore something new which is exactly the opposite of whatever you know what our survival brain says and then learning that this is actually the only way um well, i should say it is a it is a way forward um i might be a little biased in saying <laughs> it's the only way but um i think we can really tap into the same Survival mechanism to help us overcome these things, which is where it gets really interesting because you know, we we can if this is so strong We why not start there? And so the the intimacy piece is really about being with our sensations and seeing That these sensations aren't going to kill us, you know, I I had a patient that came into my office And he said "Doc, you know, if I don't smoke my head will explode (laughs) and so yeah, I didn't know what to do, so I made a terrible joke. And I was like, well, if your head explodes, then, you know, put the pieces back together and call me, we'll do a case report. Mm-hmm. i you know, he politely laughed. But then after that, we mapped out, you know, what head exploding actually feels like. Mm. And he was able to see, oh, these are physical sensations. These are thoughts. And they come and go. Uh, and my head isn't actually exploding. And if I'm with them, you know, I can, I can ride that wave out as they get bigger and as they as they slack off. And I don't have to do anything to make them go away. That in itself, that intimacy with being willing to be with the momentary experience provides tremendous freedom because we see we don't have to do anything but simply hold these experiences in awareness.
0: What do you do with, I mean, this is something, again, I talk about on the podcast a lot. And it's in this case, around anger. Because the one of the... uh, Anger is, to me, I think, (laughs) certainly one of the toughest things because it is accompanied by power. And and talk about uh, reward. That, boy, yeah. And righteous, the whole thing. And because of that, it's a difficult thing to get friendly with, get intimate with, because Mm -hmm. of that... Particular power quotient, yeah. So if I'm your patient and I'm telling you that I blow up, and I can, I have enough awareness to see where it's coming from and see how it piles on every other whatever that's happened to me, getting cut off in the highway or whatever it is, a lousy computer response to something that I'm trying to fix for my cable television. Um, all of it, all of it, just wells up and then. The, the good feeling of just absolutely hanging somebody with that power. So, yeah, that that's difficult to
1: warm up to. It is. It is. And there are probably 10 different ways to approach that depending on the person. So one could be exploring, you know, how powerful are we actually when we're out of control? Because anger, when we're angry, we're out of control. You know, we're, we're not actually in the driver's seat. And so it can feel like power because there's a lot of energy. Yeah. But when we look at it, it's it's out of control energy. And so is that really power as compared to being precise and, and um, being able to do whatever the appropriate response is? Another piece there is looking at the actual results of the behavior. So your reward-based learning is based on the rewards, not on the behavior itself. So if we see after that, you know, after we <laughs> break everything in our room or or you know, throw the phone against the wall or yell at the person on, you know, the poor support person on technical support for the cable <laughs> yeah. uh, company. Oh, ouch. You know, and yeah, when we feel self-righteous yeah. we can check in to see how much, you know, what what is the swath of suffering that we've just created not only for ourselves in terms of boosting our own ego like, oh, yeah, I won but also how much suffering it would cost on the other end and ultimately how much of a, you know, how much of a habit does this set up for us to become more angry and get road rage, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so really just exploring, you know, what do I get from this as a, as an awareness practice can help really undercut what can feel like, you know, the self-righteous anger. It's, it really is about self because it's building up a, a sense of self or a habit around, behavior, but ultimately it's destructive. Um, especially if we can compare it to channeling that energy in a way that's most efficient, productive, and potentially not destructive in the process.
0: Where do you catch it though? Uh, it, it, we want to, you know, I mean it, it
1: anger is tough to catch. Yeah. Anger is really tough to catch. So here, um, I really encourage folks to look afterwards because until we have a sense, you know, when, when we're angry, we're out of control. So we can't, you know, try to, we can try to box it, but it's tough to do. Um, so here we can become disenchanted with anger when we see the size of the, the swath of suffering that we've created from it, which, you know, even in Buddhist times, they talk about exploring gratification to its end, you know, and, mm. and really seeing how gratifying anger is. And if we see that it's not gratifying, that lack of reward help our, helps our brain see, oh, this isn't actually that rewarding. And then we're less excited to do it in the future, which helps you know, helps us be less, um, it helps it die down from, you know, kind of pulls the fuel away from it, so to speak. Right.
0: And maybe cuts through the habitual nature of it at the same yeah. time. I find also, for me, it's about feeling the pain that I have caused both to yes. myself and to the other person, and uh, getting as open as I can to the reality of that and the karma that it has created. At the same time, mm-hmm. so
1: yes, uh, we're uh, the we are the owners of our actions. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's good to remember that every day. <laughs> yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, so, uh, and uh, John also talks about uh, wandering thoughts and the default to mind wa- wandering and. Uh and you know, and the the narrative about oneself, the story of me, which is high interest for me, and I've been, people uh, have been listening to Mind Rolling, and I've been talking to all of our various friends and many other people that I've met recently, Uh and absolutely uh, so tough to cut through this story. So in my case, this anger is part of my story, and I can see where it's 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 a little bit genetic. It came down from my father, and uh, it's uh, it's like a built-in uh, receiver that I am so comfortable with in certain situations. Like my story is, I know I I know I have that to fall back on. In in other words, my defensive mechanism is well uh, well understood. But it's part of the story. And that part of the the story is so difficult, is it not? I mean, can you talk about what our story is made up of all of the different qualities of our story?
1: Yes. And I think, again, going back to Occam's Razor of, of you know, the simplest explanation is usually the right one.
0: What's Occam's Razor, by the way? Uh, uh,
1: which is basically talking about parsimony or the simplest explanations. Usually, the, oh, the oh, right okay, one. Great. Right. So that's how we uh, in medicine we look for the simplest explanation because it's because <laughs> it's usually the right one. Right. Right. So here, you know, as humans, w- w- there's a lot of complexity. But we can also look at some core patterns and some core mechanisms of of how that complexity develops. And I almost think of it as fractal patterns where, you know, there's a core mechanism that kind of spins out in a certain way. And we can start to develop a sense of self through our behaviors. You know, um, I love this. There's a quote that I think I use in my book from um, Alan Watts. Who mm. talks about you know the ego, which he believes himself to be, is nothing but a pattern of habits, and so he's talking about forming a sense of self through our behaviors over and over and over, and we start to see the world through those glasses. So if we use anger as an example, you know, if I get angry and at the grocery store and and the poor clerk, you know, gives me what I want, then I've just been rewarded for being angry. And so I've developed a little piece of self that says, oh, I'm an angry dude, and maybe it's powerful or whatever, without seeing all the things we talked about, you know, the suffering, et cetera, that comes with it. And so if I do that more and more and more without the negative feedback or without the negative consequences, that sense of self forms. And I start seeing the world through I'm an angry dude glasses. But the same is true through chocolate. You know, if I eat chocolate when I'm stressed out, then I start to see the world through if I'm stressed. I should eat chocolate glasses. Interestingly, the ancient Buddhist psychologists described this, they called it ignorance. But in modern day, we call it subjective bias because we're biased based on our previous behaviors. But really what that bias is, is a sense of self. That bias says, this is how I see the world. This is me. When in reality, it's just an ebb and flow of, of awareness and stuff interacting but we're not seeing it accurately which is why they call it ignorance.
0: <laughs> Very inaccurately. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh and you say this, is it possible the same brain region that lights up when someone smokes crack cocaine or uses any other drug of abuse is also activated this I love when people talk about
1: themselves. <laughs> yes. That's Yeah, it's rewarding. Yeah it is nuts and that's that's how we form a sense of self it you know and at some level it's probably adaptive you know it helps us place ourselves in time so you know in agrarian societies we remember where we planted the crops and we could harvest them when they were when they had come to um you know to maturity um But it it doesn't serve us a whole lot when we're walking around wearing these anger glasses or right, self-righteous, you know, I'm a smart guy or I'm the right, you know, whatever glasses problematic.
0: Yeah, quite. Um, and one other interesting thing is, okay. So, and his holiness says that one should remember one way to cut through us and them is we all, no matter what, want to be happy. And, uh, and, and now you're talking about, uh, this is uh, very interesting, that uh, the dopamine that fires up that relates us to a certain happy feeling is not necessarily happiness. I, Talk about that. Mistaken well, isn't that interesting?
1: Of- yeah, I, I, the best I could trace it was back to Shakespearean times where... You know, there was this. There was this, um, and this is just my understanding. I could be wrong. People used to talk about eudaimonia, where there was a sense of peace, of tranquility, um, uh, joy, and then somewhere in Shakespearean times, people started equating happiness with excitement. Mm. Um, which, of course, in modern day, the marketing firms love because if you get people excited, you can get them to do stuff. You can get them to buy stuff. But that excitement is really just a motivational quality that helps us get off our butt to get food so When we learn where a food source is our brain fires dopamine first at that learning event But then it starts to fire in anticipation of getting that reward or getting that um, food Whatever the receipt of the behavior Behavior is and so it gets us off the couch to go get get the food so somebody historically said, oh, that, that roller coaster feeling, that excitement, that's happiness. And Mm -hmm. so if you just buy stuff, if you get a kiss, if you, you know, if you get a bunch of likes on Instagram, that's happiness. And so we step back and say, well, how happy am I when I'm constantly being pushed or pulled to do this or that? Not that happy, but we need something to compare it to. And so this is, you know, if we haven't really noticed the peace and calm and joy that comes with, I don't know, just being with stuff what rather than doing the being versus doing, our brain's not going to see a difference. It's going to say, oh, this is as happy as it gets. But when we start to see, oh, it's actually, there's a better quality of joy, peace, you know, that comes with equanimity, concentration, being with, then our brain, it's a no brainer to our brain <laughs> where it says, oh, you know, I'm more of that, please. Mm.
0: Uh, this just reminds me. This is not really a digression, but what you, what you're saying it uh, gives real scientific credence to something Ramdas has been teaching for the last few years, and Jack has adopted as well, and Sharon, uh, and it's loving awareness. So he talks yeah. about moving, you know, out of your head, out of your egocentric view into a, a place of loving awareness where there's no judgments. And and then he calls out the quality of that place. This is love, compassion, peace, uh, joy, and forget. There's five things. Anyhow, I'm forgetting one. But basically, those qualities uh, form the true place of, quote unquote, happiness. And yeah. um, very very uh a good idea is having that awareness and that's why you know we we come out of uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure you know what ramdas represents in us and and you you know we have people that like danny goldman right who was with us in india back then and who really represent crossing over the buddhist line uh and bringing things together uh but that we say that that aw- that awareness and mindfulness has been key. We have been um, students of it since our first days in in India. Although people think that we were completely, uh, as Trumpa Rinpoche used to call Ramdas and us, love and lighters. That's <laughs> what he used to say about it. You know, uh, but that was a very important thing. Uh, so uh, what you're saying really fits exactly uh, what uh, what where we we come from um so back to the self thing the self view the the story our story um and i think one thing is another thing to note about it is how you talk about we you don't say it this way but basically we straightjacket ourselves with the commitment we have to who we think we are and our story and, and what we lose, which I, th- in reading it, I thought, well, this is really something important. We lose flexibility to even be open to anything else. Can you, yeah, just uh, talk about that a little bit.
1: Well, so, and we can even make this very experiential. Um, so if you remember a time recently uh, when you were afraid or had some fear, would you say that that feels more like a constricted or contracted or quality or more of an open and expanded quality?
0: Well, uh, the immediate knee jerk is a uh, constricted quality. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: So that, that quality may be a, uh, an indicator of like, this is me, you know, experientially versus outside of this contracted quality is, is not me. Right. And so we've already made this dualistic differentiation so with that um, there's actually there are particular brain regions and networks that are associated with that contracted quality when we get caught up in a craving when we get caught up in excitement when we get caught up in rumination when we get caught up in anxiety um, all these things lead to this contracted quality that says this is me because I want something I'm not at equilibrium I'm not equanimous mm. well with these practices, Oh, it's just awareness itself helps us see that these are simply sensations. And as we practice letting go of the craving, as we practice letting go of this, I have to be right, or the righteous anger, or whatever it is, we start to move in the opposite direction. You know, curiosity. Does it feel contracted or expanded? And it feels expanded. expanded
0: yeah.
1: yeah. All the things you named, joy, kindness, warmth that leads to an expanded quality of experience. It just feels more open. And here we even, you know, I love Carol Dweck's uh, notion of like fixed versus growth mindset. You know, when we're a fixed mindset, we can't learn. When we're a growth mindset, we can learn. Hmm. Growth is expansion. And already in that place, we're at a place where we're more flexible as compared to rigid and fixed. And so, you know, I see a lot of parallels between all of these notions of fixed mindset and, and a sense of self that's very rigid versus a growth mindset and a sense of self that's more open and flexible, simply bringing awareness in and curiosity and kindness, which helps us literally open to new possibilities. And, you know, my labs even found that there are neural correlates that line up with these things. They're what? A neural correlates like brain regions and brain networks that you know for example get activated when we're caught up in the sense oh. of self they get very deactivated when we let go really yeah when we get out of our own way
0: wow okay everybody it's possible judd has done the experiments to prove it you, you we can change it is a very 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 reasonable possibility i mean many people I mean, you know, if you become, if you really get and, uh, you know, work on mindfulness practices and, and work on awareness and work on motivations, you start to really see this stuff. Some people may get very disappointed in a way because they go, holy shit, this is really massive here. The way, the tentacles... Uh, that are are that are in us from these habitual patterns and these neurotic tendencies and the shit that happened to you when you were two years old or whatever. This is a, you know, it's a worthy quest, but it's a very, um, it, it takes a lot of positive um, willpower, shall we
1: say. Hmm. Well, interesting you say that because I would wonder how much willpower it actually takes. Um, so for example, we've, we created an amp-based mindfulness training for eating to help people who are struggling with eating and willpower is the primary method that people use to lose weight. And there's a reason that dieting is now called yo-yo dieting because we lose some weight with our willpower and then we fall off the wagon we gain the weight or more and then lose it and then gain it and all this stuff. Um, there's more and more science coming out that's suggesting that willpower is more of a myth than muscle. And we know now that the prefrontal cortex that seems to be associated with willpower, it goes offline when we get stressed, which is precisely when <laughs> when people fall off their diets. So we took a different approach and asked this question, you know, what if we help people just pay attention as they're eating? Is that enough to actually help them change behavior without willpower? And it's it's very frightening for folks that start using, you know, start with an app-based training. You know, we just give them this app. Mm. Um, and they just, they start using it. We just start by helping them understand how their mind works so they can see these habit loops and then encourage them to go ahead and eat, which seems crazy to many people because they've been so restrictive their whole lives. And they're like, whoa, I'm just going to, you know, eat like crazy. And the reality is if they pay attention when they eat, their body tells them, oh, you've had enough. Um. So, you know, we've even, we did a Published a study on this a couple of years ago. Um, the The app's called Eat Right Now. We uh, got a forty percent reduction in craving related eating with really? with this without willpower. Hmm. Wow. And the whole point is, you 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 can't rely on willpower, and it might actually be uh, self defeating because then we we feel terrible about ourselves when we fail, and think it's our fault, and then you know often eat more because we're eating to console ourselves yeah but the reality is when you pay attention there's a lot of wisdom in your body and it it says okay when you eat when you're stressed you don't actually feel that good when you overeat you don't feel very good and so we can see the lack of reward that comes with those things and then we start to become disenchanted with old behavior and we've had you know people we don't actually Use this as a weight loss program. We just say help, help change your relationship to eating, and lots of people lose weight. Yeah, really. Just now, you know because it's a they're listening to the wisdom of their body. Yeah, I'm
0: I'm gonna defend myself on my willpower thing and recontextualize Please. what I really me- meant. Please, because Please. certainly I I am all the way, uh, and understanding myself that willpower never does nothing. Okay, so, but, uh, and I guess uh, my little story is that I spend a lot of time in India, and recently I've been spending time with a uh, a really accomplished yogi, and, you know, someone who just goes somewhere, sits down, doesn't think about how he's going to eat or shelter or anything, and just, you know, complete surrender to the moment. So, and he took a few of us once to a jungly kind of place, and he said, yeah, this is, where I came, I spent six months here, I just came and sat down, and I said, well, how do you do something like that? I mean, you have no idea if you're going to get fed. You, I, I mean, he is, a, it's called sadhu, wandering mendicant, so that is part of the game, but still... And n- most, 98% of them that wander around India are really staying by some ashram or other that they know they will get fed. Okay, there's very rare that this kind of be... So I said, well, how do you do that? You just go and... S- uh, and he says, he said to me, God's willpower. Uh. Uh, so he's aligning himself with the universal blah, blah, whatever it is to him. Uh, in this case, it's called Ram in India, and allowing that to, to to be, and it's more about just being, you know, and it's hard to imagine for us, but I loved it, I said, God's willpower, okay, so, to me, that's no different than mindfulness and awareness, that it's just getting into a place that is uh, allowing, as you said before, uh, we need to allow for flexibility to happen, and so we are not going to stay stuck in that story, so. Yeah. That's my absolutely. defense on that one. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I love that God's willpower yeah, isn't it, is Gray? I is the opposite of what of human willpower because human willpower is dualistic, yeah, whereas God's right. willpower is non dual.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's perfect. Um uh, so you have a whole trap chapter here on <laughs> addiction to uh, distraction. Oh god. I mean you know, it's it's tough to go through a book. Judd and then look at yourself and go okay yeah addiction to you know I'm a multi in my job as uh, uh, the director of the Love Server Remember Foundation which has so many different components it's got a podcast network it's got retreats it's got Ram, you know a Ramdas ch- cha- um, uh, channel uh, and uh, apps and everything so I tend to uh, and by the way, pride myself in my ability to keep all this shit in my head until stuff starts to go around like <laughs> recently with leaving a pot on the stove and uh, forgetting to turn the, turn the burner off. So, um, yeah, I love the, uh, tell us about addiction, you know, to uh, distraction.
1: Well, you know, um, I love, there's this, uh, Cornell West actually said, mm. you know, we all have, You know, we're these self-medicated narcissists Um, and we have these weapons of mass distraction. Um, Never before have we had, (laughs) you know, a a slot machine in our pocket as in our cell phones. And these, you know, I don't know how many of us have pulled up to a stoplight at night and we look around and everybody's looking down at their glowing crotch, you know, because (laughs) they can't wait 30 seconds. To just be at a stoplight. They've got to be distracted by something. And so you know, these yeah, these things are training us to be slaves to these things where we can always be checking something interesting, whether it's the news or checking our email or our newsfeed or whatever. And all of this is a way to entertain ourselves because our brains are wired for novelty, you know, which is a survival mechanism, but it's not a happiness mechanism. And so, you know, we're just Wait, how is it a survival? So,
0: sorry to interrupt you, but how is yeah. that a survival mechanism, the, the distraction thing?
1: So the novelty piece is it's a, no. goes back to helping us find sources of food. So if a source of food dries up, if we just keep going back to that source, we're going to die because oh. there's no food. So at that point, our brain has to adapt and say, "Oh, I need to find something new, something different." And so you know we're wired to look for some alternative and so we're going to there's a novelty seeking quality that that's you know kind of hardwired and so that can be exploited mm. that's basically what you know if you um, that's why you know social media is so addictive they they set up a perfect formula where it's portable it's instant access and you can make these things beep and de- Ding and do all these things to catch our attention at random moments, which is the most addictive type of learning, <laughs> right My. in our pocket, and we and we pay for it. We're the ones, yeah, right, yeah. a
0: lot. right. Wow, boy, I mean, we really start to think about these things. Uh, it it seems smart to to, uh, to work on antidotes in your life. You know, so that's why there's some great things in this book that would give you that, and also addicted to to thinking. And of course, I, I mean, there's people who come to us or come to me. I can't, I can't really meditate. I'm not really good at meditating. I said, "Oh, really? Why is that?" Well, the thoughts. I, there's too many thoughts. I can't. Uh, there's, I, and I usually say to them, "Oh, you're the first person who ever told me that that there's." <laughs> Addicted to thoughts, right? Uh,
1: <laughs> I my name is Judd. I'm a thought addict. Yeah, yeah. I right. That's what we have.
0: That. Yeah, we have to have it. But um, and and a lot of people, I think, miss the point in terms of uh, meditative practice that I got to get rid of my thoughts. Yeah, you know, and all of Tw- that, and, and as you say in this uh, book, uh, you know, thinking is not the problem. You know, creating spaciousness to allow it to be is more, not a problem, but more of a reality. But yeah, talking about addicted to
1: thinking. Yeah, well, and that's the beauty of it. And that's one of the most common questions I get is, you know, how do I just stop my thoughts? And I say, one, good luck. And two, thinking's actually pretty helpful uh, in general. And so it's about how much are we getting caught up in the thinking versus just being with the thinking and allowing it to flow.
0: And it's our default mode. You talk about uh, the type of uh, thinking in which we can get caught up you know, with how our brains work. And I, uh, yeah, I found that myself. Uh, again, mindfulness and awareness are beautiful practices. I mean, unless they're, I mean, it's okay if they're being done to increase your portfolio power too because you get more one pointed and all of that but um, but it's 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 quite uh, it can be such a trap and the biggest part of it and the part that you know we, we talk about when we do these retreats and so on with Jack and others is the belief system the way that we believe uh in in our thoughts, and uh, there was a great uh, thing, um, Adya Shanti, who's a wonderful non-dual teacher. I'm not sure if you know who he is. Um, yeah, yeah. So he, we were talking in one of these podcasts, and he was saying it took me a while to kind of realize. I couldn't believe what the I was a kid, and all these adults were going through all of these crazy ass antics, and then at one point it dawned on me, jeez, they believe in their thoughts. You know, and that yeah. uh, that uh, to get unglued from that just through mindfulness and awareness through, through using these practices um, is entirely necessary uh, on the road to any kind of uh, contentment. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Well, and I, I like how you use the word unglued because the stickiness—that's you know—that's the caught-up quality when we believe something and, or we get excited and we are thinking it over and over and over, whether it's, Oh, that was a great date or I can't wait until my next kiss or, yeah. you know, what about my next raise or my next vacation? You know, always living in the future or reminiscing about the past. That's the sticky quality of, of, ex, of experience that leads us to non-existence because we're not here in the present moment. Yeah. We're lost.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Somebody wrote a book. I'll be here now about that too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but in terms of, t- t- I want to just mention this, and I don't think we can you know, have time to actually go through, but uh, you mentioned three different uh, practices which are, for me and many, many, many people, the, the foundation from which we have any kind of chance— to To really uh, change these habitual patterns and get a and and realize where we're stuck and and our neuro- neurotic uh, neurotic tendencies. But so there's three things: awareness of breath, paying attention to breath, and and when your mind wanders, bring it back. I mean, uh, we all were trained in vipassana uh, back in the day mm-hmm. and uh, use it to this day, and it's it's uh, I can't more highly recommend a practice than that. And I know you've done a uh, a, a number of different uh, retreats with uh, our friends, and I think Joseph in particular, right? Yeah, he's and my had, teacher. Yeah, love. He was at the retreat, by the way, uh, that we ran in uh, December with Ram Das, and uh, well, Jack, Sharon, and Joseph for the first time were there together, and they hadn't oh, been wonderful. together in a long, long time. Anyhow, one day, uh, Joseph, I said, "Okay, so you'll teach on Saturday morning." He said, "Yeah." What? What do you think? I said, I don't know. How about mindfulness? You know, you have the book on mindfulness. Everybody <laughs> out there, by the way, Joseph Goldstein, Mindfulness, get it. Uh, and he, he so he got up there and he said, well, I, I've got an hour and a quarter to basically transmit a 450-page book. <laughs> and you know what, Judd? He did it. Yeah. He did it. I, I mean, it, it's so... I mean, well, Joseph is just so great, but it is so concise. I was, it's, if you really took it to heart, it would be a path to freedom if you mm-hmm. just took it to heart. So certainly awareness of the breath, breath and loving kindness, wishing someone well, and that practice uh, that is uh, most identified in, in the West with Sharon Salzberg. So those mm-hmm. of you who want to really find out more about that practice, tune in to her. And then choiceless awareness, uh, which is something that you can do, especially if you're not oh, formally meditating. That's something that you can, or you can practice the breath practice. But this is even more um, free form in the way that whatever, just be with whatever comes into your awareness, thoughts, emotions, and so on. Especially, and most especially around pain too, because that's uh, many people. Uh, are dealing with that on a day-to-day basis more and more because of just sitting in front of these computers in a day yeah. in day out. So, um, and I know uh, everyone. will have a, a link to Judd's book, uh, that you'll be able to get it. But it has. It's not just talking about uh, the problem. There is ways in which you can utilize solutions. Um, addicted to love, of course. That's probably well, i got to say, especially romantic love, that's got to be one. Of, I mean, I'm sure you are seeing many patients coming to you dealing with this kind of thing, <laughs> right? Losing their minds, basically.
1: Yes. It's a basic survival mechanism, you know, yet again, uh, food and and reproduction. And so, you know, if we don't see it as a basic survival mechanism and we get, sucked into it, then it's gonna cause a lot of suffering. That's why so many you know, songs are written about this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Everybody can relate.
0: Yeah. But um I think it's a it's it's really good for people to understand what happens to them in a romantic love situation. Mm. And what happens a few years later when, for the most part, the deep, lustful elements are out of the equations, the, the objectification, the bodies and all of it, the pleasure syndromes. And then you start to think about um, without asking or needing or wanting something in return that you are just being love. With this, and it's one direction, which mm-hmm. is you know, it's something we learned when we went back to India with Ramdas when he went back the se- second time. We got that full on from somebody who was living that, uh, mm-hmm. named Karoli Bama. That the, the, mm-hmm. what great example a human in a body that it was a one way trip. No business. There was no caring about what we were giving back or not giving back. And so, yeah. and that it is possible to. Uh, to embody that in one's life
1: uh, well and, and something i think we can tap into and explore any moment you know if you look at romantic love um, versus selfless love you know romantic love is about getting something right again it's that yeah, basic yeah. survival that says i need and so there's this contracted excited quality versus things like loving kindness or agape and in, in christianity where it's it's a flowing out and, it, you know, if we think of this contraction versus expansion, that fits beautifully there, too. So, you know, even the same brain networks that get activated when we're contracted, you know, within the throes of romantic love, these quiet down when in the midst of loving kindness. And we feel this because there's an outflowing, there's a connection, there's an expanded quality um, where we start to lose that boundary between self and other because we're becoming more connected and realizing that there's no other thing besides Connection right the the, the disconnection is actually in our a Manufactured thing by the mind, you know this ignorance piece so it's it's beautiful that the quality of that experience of expansion of connection actually you know, has brain correlates, which is you know helpful to know from a neuroscientific standpoint, but also just from a very simple pragmatic standpoint, we can look at, oh, am I contracted? Am I caught up in wanting, you know, in in infatuation versus is there, like you said, it's a one-way trip. There's, there's connection. There's, there's, there's nothing but love when we're truly experiencing it. And so it's not like we have to be um, one. It's not, it's not a, um, you know, a, one or the other, it, we can always be checking in, am I contracting or am I expanding? More of a, a continuous thing, rather than a binary differentiation. Mm.
0: And isn't it true that when we do that act of giving, our motivation is in line, we're centered, and in that giving, I think, if is it not true, if that's practiced enough, or if that happens enough, you stop being so concerned about your story, then, right? Maybe you get yeah, out well of this. Yeah, well, the
1: story—the story's not as rewarding. Like talking about ourselves feels like nothing compared to just being connected and and kind and generous. Up. You know, it just feels better, and so you know, it's more rewarding. So, of course, our brain's going to say, i I'd prefer kindness and generosity over." you know, talking about myself any day as long as we s- truly see the clear mm-hmm. results of each of those.
0: Yeah. And really, uh, knowing motivation uh, is extraordinarily important and uh, can only come through practice in terms of mm-hmm. mindfulness and meditative practice, in my mind. So here's, uh, this is indulging, but in your book, you have this poem from Hafiz. I love Hafiz, okay?
1: (laughs) And it is an amazing poem. (laughs) I got it.
0: Okay, I want to read it. Please, please. Dear Master, it's once a young man came to me and said, came to Hafiz, dear Master, I am feeling strong and brave today and I would like to know the truth about all of my attachments. (laughs) And I replied, attachments, attachments, sweetheart. Do you really want me to speak to you about all your attachments when I can see so clearly you have built with so much care such a great brothel? I love that. Such a great brothel to house all of your pleasures. You have even surrounded the whole damn place with armed guards and vicious dogs to protect your desires so that you can sneak away from time to time and try to squeeze light into your parched being from a source as fruitful as a dried date pit. That even <gasps> Isn't a that bir- amazing? Yeah. A fruitful as a dried date pit that even a bird <laughs> is wise enough to spit out. Uh, that, that, I mean,
1: he's incredible. He is, but that's it. Fruit as sourceful yeah, as it's a fruitful dried pit. date yeah. pit. Yeah. even a bird is wise enough to spit out there's no juice in excitement yet that's what juices our dopamine and we've just mistaken Mm. that for happiness and as soon as we see that our brain wakes up and says oh wow (laughs) what was i doing all my life really Uh,
0: that's so great um there's something else oh I love this thing, too. Um, you know, one of the the tough kind of stuff of we talked about before, self-righteousness, is mm-hmm. really tough. I mean, just take all this stuff that's going down politically here with uh, Trump being president and how difficult it is to talk about trying to get out of your story uh, that, mm-hmm. oof, you know, and the right the amount of righteousness about we're right and they are wrong is uh extraordinary and doesn't allow f- for any kind of spaciousness to have any dialogue with anybody and wow. and i'm right there i'm i'm there myself i see that guy on tv and you know i there's a knee jerk reaction and um i don't seem to be able to do what ramdas does by the way he's got a picture of him up on his altar and Donald has a soul, and we're gonna talk to that soul. Um, so righteousness and uh, you know again, just the the rewards of that are so strong. Again, it's like the anger thing. and then you you put in your um, Confucius advice, I love this before you embark on a journey of revenge, dig two graves, right? Yes uh. <laughs> um and then uh, towards the end of the book and uh you you have a whole chapter on flow can you talk about that I mean, we're getting close to the end here but just uh yeah talk about flow I think that that is uh, one uh, very el- elemental process you know for us to be able to transform what we're talking about
1: yeah so simply put Um, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, who is a very famous psychologist, coined this term flow back in the 70s, I think.
0: And that you can pronounce his name. That's a miracle, too.
1: It took me a while. (laughs) Csikszentmihalyi. So he talks about it in terms of qualities of selflessness, of effortlessness, of timelessness. Basically, you know, it's like this, this thing that athletes will literally die to to uh, to get into this state. And so if you think of what we've been talking about, contraction versus expansion, um, when we move from con- a contracted state of excitement or fear or anxiety, and we start to live in the spaciousness of the now, of simply resting in awareness, we start to lose that boundary between self and the rest of the world, you know, if, if this contraction expands to infinity, where where do you end and where does the rest of the world begin? So I think that's really what and Samai was talking about in terms of flow, and that fits beautifully with mindfulness, with these with awareness, with these practices. And so we've even you know we had some experienced meditators in our fMRI scanner, and we were doing real time experiments where we could watch their brain activity in real time. And somebody reported that she got into flow, and we could watch this network just totally dropped down in activity and you know it it was one of these self-referential networks so as she lost this sense of self um and kind of you know got into flow we could watch this this network activity drop as well so the concept is lining up with her direct experience which is lining up with her brain activity which is pretty amazing and i think what we can do is find the conditions that support flow rather than trying to force flow. Because as soon as you force it, it's gone. You can't do it because it's you doing something as compared to finding the conditions that support that expansion. And we can all tap into these conditions. Not that we're all going to be in a you know, a hard flow, so to speak, all the time. But we're always contracting or expanding. So we can just even drop in. Oh, am I contracting? And get curious. Oh, And in that moment, with that curiosity injected, we start to open a little bit or with kindness or simply resting in awareness. And so I think of it as a continuum that we can create the conditions that support flow in any one moment and always be moving in that direction. And it is such a tasty state for our brain. Our brain is going to want to move in that direction naturally. Mm. We just have to help feed it the right food, so to speak.
0: Yeah, and and a lot of that is practice. I I really believe, and, and in our own tradition, one of the practices that's most has gigantic efficacy for something like this is chanting, and yeah. uh, because it's music, and you you can easily you literally go into the flow of the melodic structure and the rhythm structure. And Krishna das who you, you might know, has yes, uh, Krishna. yeah. Yeah, so he and he talks about that's the that's the maple syrup, yeah, the rhythm, the the melody that you lose yourself into a flow, and the mantra then can do the creative process that's uh, necessary without you thinking about it. So, yeah. yeah, so it's a pretty pretty great thing. Hey, I really appreciate you being here, Judd, and and meeting you. It's been a, a wonderful experience and a lot of great information in the Craving Mind, your book. And all of that will be on the uh, uh, beherenownetwork.com/slash/mindrolling on the show notes and everything else we've been talking about will be available. I'm even going to get okay. I can say his first name, Mihali, and uh,
1: chiksen Mahai.
0: chiksen Mahai. Okay, all you guys out there that uh, that are putting this podcast together, you find chiksen Mahai. And some, uh, you know, his books or something. We want to let people uh, get connected uh, <laughs> and linked up. So all of that will be there, plus a uh, uh, website. Uh, do you have a website? What do you have going so people yeah, it's, can
1: go- It's just drjud.com, or folks okay. can also find me on Twitter at Jud Brewer, J U D B R E W E R. But the website's the easiest, Dr. Judd,
0: Yeah. And if you're in Boston, com. you might think that uh you can see dr
1: judd yeah run into me yeah
0: I, i'm i'm in Asheville, uh north carolina judd and uh I, yeah I, I i would love to run into you here but you're not here i i also did a podcast you know mark epstein lovely man yeah sure yeah so i said the same thing to mark and he wouldn't i said okay let's after i did a session with him i said all right let me let me do some privates with you uh this works zoom is pretty said nope Got to be live. It's a whole different thing. So yeah. that was the end of that. So I'm still looking. But thanks again for being here. And, uh, and thank you, Kate. I got to do a call out from Kate to, to Kate from 1440 Multiversity. Go to 1440.org because Kate told me about you, Judd, and said I should do this. And I think you've, you just did something at 1440, I believe, uh, or, or about to, not sure.
1: Yeah, this this coming weekend we'll be doing a benefit retreat uh-huh. uh, raising money for uh, underserved minorities. Oh, great. Uh, Wonderful.
0: Yeah. So thank you, Kate and 1440. And we shall see you all next week on Mind Rolling.
1: Okay. Thank you for having me.